the gospel account is preparing us to remember the, the most crucial and pivotal days in history. As, as I referred to last week, as, as you well know, the days in which the crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ unfolded. And Luke the doctor, Luke the historian, who was, was meticulous to include so many details in his account, arranged his account to show Jesus' clear intentions. Jesus had a plan to carry out. And that's what Luke is trying to show over the course of this section of his gospel. And so young Christians, you young disciples, as you're listening to this account, as I read it here in a moment, Jesus is intent and focused on going somewhere. Where is he going? And why is he going there? See if you can figure that out as we go along. This is Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But that one said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see. Would you give us your spirit, Lord? Because we confess that if you don't, we will not see. We will not recognize. We will not believe. But we do know that by the work of your spirit, you can bring us along so that we can recognize your good news. In these, your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In 1968, the year that I was born, actually, a fascinating man, who was not me, set out on a fascinating journey, which was not my life. It has nothing to do with me at all. Richard Prinicky was a World War II veteran and a carpenter and a mechanic and a farmer and a handyman very capable and rugged person who, at the age of 51 in 1968, decided to retire alone into the Alaskan wilderness in order to test himself. He set out with some basic tools, hand tools, for instance, uh, the, the, the head of a hatchet, not even the handle, because he didn't want to carry the extra weight of the handle, just the head, the, the iron head of the hatchet. And and some files and chisels and such. And he made his way out into the Alaskan wilderness with a few supplies that he could fit into a backpack and, 
He hiked out with arrangements to make use of a friend's hunting cabin for a season while he himself launched out to a new site to build a log cabin for himself in order to test himself, in his own words, to see what he was capable of. He kept a very careful daily journal, and he even took along a camera, and a small video camera and uh, a tripod. I guess in those days the video camera wouldn't have been small, but he took along a camera and a tripod in order to film his experience in what ways he was able to do and that journal and those basic films have been used now to, to create an account, a documentary of his what became 30 years of life in the Alaskan wilderness. He built a log cabin with his own hands and forged a life for himself there with the wildlife and, and the weather and tested himself for 30 years alone. And such an adventure, such a, a, a resolute test by someone like that fascinates us in so many different ways. We respond to that in various ways. Some of us are, are sort of jealous. You know, some of you tougher-minded types might think, well, I wish I could do that. Others of you are just kind of curious. You think, well, how did he do that? I mean, how, how could a person just go out into the wilderness by themselves, build a log cabin, and live for 30 years, for three decades by themselves? Wouldn't he be lonely? Others of you are just repulsed by the idea and think, what a crazy man. He should have been alone in the wilderness for 30 years if he was willing to do that. We're fascinated by that, I think, because we ourselves actually live within a historical narrative, a reality that is themed on such a resolute test. Because God's unwavering plan through all of history, led up to that resolute test in the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection of Christ Himself. That itself is the resolute test that is the theme of of our very existence, of all of history. And so we're fascinated by such things. And so Luke makes this clear, starting here in Luke 9. In, In these words, When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. It was a, a Hebrew idiom that, that Luke used there, which we, I'm sure, recognize immediately its significance, its meaning. It simply is symbolic of determination, of, of unwavering resolve. Far more than Richard Prinicky had in setting off into the Alaskan wilderness, Jesus himself set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then over the next ten chapters, Luke shows us how that unfolds because Luke wants his reader to know where Jesus is going. So in chapter 9, his face was set toward Jerusalem. In chapter 13, he went on his way journeying towards Jerusalem. And there Jesus himself said, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In chapter 17, Luke writes, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. In chapter 18, Jesus said to His disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man will come to pass there. In chapter 19, Luke tells us He was near to Jerusalem and then He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And then finally, when He drew near and saw Jerusalem, He wept over it. Jesus had one plan in mind. Redemption. He was not drawn into it unwittingly. 
He was not drug into it kicking and screaming. He was not accidentally swept up and entangled in the sticky strands of injustice. God himself, rather, had resolutely planned it all. And Peter, the apostle, tells us that in Acts chapter 2 where he's preaching to the people. And he explains to them, he says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death on a cross. God's plan of redemption is absolutely unwavering. So what does Jesus' resolve show about the coming of God's kingdom? What does his resolve, his determination, show about God's plan of redemption? This passage here in in Luke helps us to see it through three sets of people and the three different misunderstandings that they want to bring with them into the kingdom all of which Jesus rejects. The first one shows that his plan is a plan of grace. The days drawing near, he sent his eager disciples ahead into a Samaritan village in order to arrange, evidently, an overnight stay there. And the people there did not receive him. Why? Why would they not let him come? Luke tells us, he says, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That could mean a couple of different things. Those people wouldn't have necessarily known that he was on his way to Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews had a conflicted history and relationship with each other. They were sort of half-blood cousins to each other from distant past before the exile of Israel. And their courses had taken a different way since then, not just geographically, but religiously. And they didn't think very highly of each other. They didn't want to interact with one another at all. And it may just be that they knew Jesus was Jewish, and so they didn't welcome him there. He belonged to Jerusalem, and that was enough to refuse his company. Or it may just be, Luke is alluding to the fact that in God's providence, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And that was not the place for him to stop for the night. Either way, James and John seemed to have an answer for the problem, didn't they? In their zeal, which they want to bring into the kingdom of God, they are excited, they're in a hurry, they're eager, and so they say, Lord, should we call down fire and consume them? You can really just kind of almost hear the boyish eagerness and zeal in their words, can't you? I mean, it's kind of like, some boys camping out at summer camp and wanting to take a slug and put it on the fire and just see what will happen. That's what boys will do, right? And these boys want to do that here. They're, they're eager. Disciples, sometimes who catch a whiff of the kingdom of God, can become blinded by their own zeal, as evidently James and John were. Christians through the ages in their eagerness have done such things, and it actually has, in many occasions, created an obstacle to belief. Sometimes those who are skeptical of Christianity will say, well, it can't possibly be true. Because just look at the record of Christians through history. Look at those disciples of Jesus who wanted to rain down fire on some people who just didn't want to host them for the night. Look at the Crusades, European Christians who made their way over hundreds of miles, thousands of miles to the Middle East in order to conquer the Muslims. Look at the witch trials of colonial America. Look at the racism of the Old South in which 
professing Christians from their churches and their pulpits declared that some, because of the color of their skin, were not fit to be in the presence of others. Just look at those things and see the record of Christians through the ages, and therefore Christianity can't possibly be true. All of those are reasons for the skeptical mind to refuse the gospel. So what does a Christian do with that kind of thing? I mean, you can say, well, but look at good, the good things Christians have done. And Christians have done lots of good things throughout the ages, and, and surely you can recognize that. Well, they can always come back with something else. Well, Christians have done that. The Christians have, have picketed against military veterans or, or whatever. So what does a Christian do? Well, one thing that we can say to appeal to Christians in history is simply to say that when Martin Luther King Jr., spoke out so bravely and courageously against the injustices of the professing Christian South and their divisive words about race, did he say then, look at these Christians in their churches and what they're doing to people of color, therefore Christianity can't be true? No, he didn't say that. What he actually said was, look at these people and what they're doing. This is not consistent with the Bible. You actually need to read your Bible, people, and see what the Scripture says about this matter of the equality of man and being created in the image of God. Look at what Scripture says. What you're saying is not the gospel. It's not good news. Rather, the gospel is patient grace from a patient Redeemer. Jesus had come not to judge, but to redeem, to show the grace of God. Oh, he pointed to bad fruit, of course. Be done with that, he would say, and follow me instead. But he didn't come with judgment. Not yet, because God is patient throughout all of the ages of Scripture, throughout all of the ages of history, through Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, into the early church, even in Second Peter. We read Peter's words explaining, saying, The Lord is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. The kingdom of God is not for the overly zealous, the hurried, gotta-get-there-now-fire-and-brimstone types. It's just not. And so what did Jesus do with these disciples? Luke keeps it simple. He rebuked them, and they went along the road to another village. His unwavering plan is a plan of grace. It's also a plan of endurance. So going along the road, he comes upon another person, evidently. I don't know if it was maybe one of his disciples or somebody who said this. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Now this one brought the misunderstanding of idealism. Trying to bring it into the kingdom. This one doesn't understand that life in the kingdom of God is actually hard. And so Jesus responds with what Christians often will refer to as one of the hard sayings. Of Jesus. What does he say? He says to this one, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I have no bed to sleep in. It's kind of a funny statement to make, isn't it? What does he mean by this? Jesus rejects this man's idealism because this man does not love God. He loves adventure. He loves excitement. He loves even heroism. Oh Lord, Jesus, let me be a hero. I'll go wherever you go because I want to be a hero. I want the excitement and the adventure of wherever you're going to go. I don't even need to know where it is. He has wrong expectations. The hard saying is really not that hard, actually. It's really simply this. 
the animals have better material comforts to offer you than I do. So why would you want this? Because where I'm going, you will endure unsettled feelings. The Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, every year puts out a a directory. Well, two. One is a church directory. The other is a ministerial directory. In the ministerial directory, they list all the the ordained pastors in the denomination with kind of a little bio of where they've been and when they were born, married, children, and places they've served and such. And it's interesting to look through those different bios to see where different pastors have been in their travels as a pastor and in life. One man that I met in Georgia when we were there has quite the list of a pathway. In 1972, he was ordained, and from 72 to 1983, he served three different churches in three different towns in Mississippi. In 1983, he moved to Texas, and until 1990, he served, for seven years, he served two different churches in two different cities in two very different parts of Texas. In 1991, he moved back to Georgia, where he served one church, and then he moved on back to Mississippi, where he served two more churches. Until 2001, he moved to Alabama, where he served another church for a season until he retired back to Georgia to plant another church. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but this man had no idea where to lay his head. Now, in 17 years of marriage, Mary and I have lived in four different cities and seven different homes, although we haven't served in too many different places. Aaron and Kara Morris are soon to move away from us, from Dallas, where they're both from, to Portland, Oregon, which is far away, and who knows where the Lord might take them from there. He may leave them there for a long time. Not everyone will be so mobile as that, but the fact is for all of us, you can never go home again. Maybe your mom and dad told you that a long time ago. You can never go home again. What does that mean? When Mary and I moved here seven years ago, we bought a house and got moved in, and then we learned through my mother, who was a longtime real estate agent, that the home in which I grew up was for sale. We weren't tempted to buy it, but we wanted to go and take a look. And so we went and had an appointment to go and walk through the house where I grew up. It was fascinating for me to go and see the rooms that I remembered and, and the yard where I played. And, you know, honestly, it wasn't as great as I thought it would be. It was kind of run down. It was kind of small. You know, when you're a child, things are huge. When you grow up, they get a lot smaller. It's just not as great as I remembered it to be. And I realized this is what it means you can never go home again. Because even if you go back to the place, it's not what you thought that it was. It's not as you remembered Often, when a person decides to follow Christ, they have ideal expectations. I'm going to grow in these ways. I'm going to gain wisdom in these ways. I'm going to find a calling in life that will give me a feeling of purpose and fulfillment. I'm going to have relationships that are going to matter to me and make me whole. I'm going to be home. And with these expectations, we then learn that being a disciple is really a little bit more like sleeping with your head on a rock. Because at best you'll find uncomfortable joy. The joy of knowing God in Jesus is great, but it's uncomfortable. We, We have to admit that and recognize that you will have to say no 
to yourself. I like camping, or, or at least the idea of camping, maybe. I camped some as a kid. And I have some camping equipment, which we've not really made great use of except in the backyard on occasion. Some people go camping with so much equipment that it's almost like they move a hotel room out to the woods. And I kind of figure, why would you do that? I mean, if you're going to go camping, then go camping. And we've camped in the backyard a number of times with our kids. And I never sleep well in a tent. I just can't do it. It's just uncomfortable to me. It doesn't fit. It's joyful and fun in some sense, and yet it's uncomfortable. What you're going to get in the kingdom of God is probably not what you think when you get there. It's going to be uncomfortable. Why is that? Because when you get there, you come with idealistic expectations. Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I don't even need to know the itinerary. I'll be there. Really? Where was he going? When this man met him, where was he going? Luke had already told us. To what destination had he set his face? He had an unwavering plan to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised again. There is no place for an idealist in the kingdom of God. Because his expectations cannot endure the suffering of temptation the rejection of those who mock you for saying no to temptation, the killing off of your old nature, which you must do, and the being raised of a new nature, which itself is joyful and yet uncomfortable. The plan of God, which unwavers, is a plan of endurance. It's also, though, here Jesus shows us a plan of faithfulness. Two more men come along the way as they're going and and they offer some measure of discipleship. They say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first let me, and fill in the blank, but first let me, these guys bring a misunderstanding of pragmatism. That is, Jesus, I know that following you is important, but there are just some very practical things that I've got to take care of first. They're pragmatists, and they're rejected because you can't place conditions on the kingdom of God. Now, many things capture our attention and compete for our faithfulness. But how can the coming kingdom of God just be another one of those things if we've actually seen it clearly? If we've actually recognized what it is, how can we just put it in a box and say, well, it's just one of those things to which I'm committed to in my life. I, I'll get there, but at first I've got to do this thing that's more pressing to me. How can that be? Discipleship is not a compartment that you just add to your life. It is your life. You can't add on the but-ifs. You can't add on the as-long-as conditions. You can't add on the only-until-this. You simply can't. These two men who interact with Jesus in this way show the distractions from our faithfulness. One of them is worldly allegiances. This one, first one says, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first let me bury my father. Okay, that seems really reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, it's a family commitment, right? It's a, it's a family 
allegiance. And proper burial was a major concern in the ancient world. It was an enormous family responsibility to do that. The problem with this is that if this man's father were already dead and waiting to be buried, this man would not be out in public. He would be busy taking care of the arrangements already. He wouldn't be out on the road talking to Jesus about discipleship. So the fact is that this man is simply saying, Jesus, let me just wait until my dad dies, whenever that might be, and I'll bury him, I'll take care of the family stuff, and then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus says, no. After my family allegiances are filled, then I'll come follow you. After my calendar allegiances are fulfilled, then I'll come and follow you. After my career allegiances have been met, then I'll come and follow you. After my leisure allegiances have been completed, then, Jesus, I'll come and I'll follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. It's kind of a morbid statement, isn't it? I mean, this is not a guy who was out to plant a church of lots of people right away because this is not what a church planter says to people, let the dead bury their own dead. I think what he's saying here is simply, if anything is more important to you than I am, it will bury you. If your faithfulness is to worldly allegiance, you will find that it will not be faithful to you. So his worldly allegiances are refused. The next man brings along the same kind of pragmatism, but with a different twist. His distraction is worldly longings. He says to Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to those in my house. Again, that sounds really reasonable, doesn't it? Maybe. Jesus says no. He replies, nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is not so much a refusal as it is a warning to this man. We love to look back and long for what the old life held for us, don't we? And so Jesus warns this man, saying, a look back will steer you off course. When I was in ninth grade or 10th grade or whatever age you are when you get your driver's license, I had taken driver's education classes, you know, for however long we did that back in that day. And the day came, I, my birthday came along, I was the right age to get a driver's license, so my dad picked me up at school and was going to drive me to the, the, the city office where you take a driver's test for your license. And he handed me the keys at the high school and he said, you drive, you're the one who's getting your license. And he got in the passenger seat and I stepped into the driver's seat and started the car and we drove along by the high school. And... I was eager and anxious and excited to go and get my driver's license, as, as you who drive well know the feeling. And so as I was driving along the high school, I was looking to see where my friends might be. And, and I, I saw some friends over here, and I, I looked over there. I wanted to kind of wave and show them, I'm driving, I'm going to... And I began to veer off, of course, to the left. And as soon as I turned, a car was headed right for... We were about to have a head-on collision, and I swerved back the other way. My dad hadn't said a word the whole time. I think he was going to let me do it. And he calmly looked at me and said, that was a bad idea, wasn't it? And Jesus is saying to this guy, it's a bad idea to look back because it will swerve you off course. And therefore, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. As a disciple, your faithfulness wavers, doesn't it? 
There are lots of distractions that take your eyes off of the course. But to follow Jesus means that you acknowledge Him as King. Any practical or pragmatic conditions that you place on the kingdom of God actually makes you king, doesn't it? To those who followed Him, Jesus had already said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But what we have to recognize is it's not your faithfulness on which God's plan depends. We read earlier from that New Testament passage from 2 Timothy, Paul there writing to Timothy to encourage him in his ministry, quotes an early Christian hymn or poem, perhaps it is, which is fascinating. You heard it moments ago, but listen again. Paul writes to Timothy, If we died with Christ, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He will disown us. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. Do you hear it? If, he, if we are faithless, He remains faithful full because he cannot disown himself. Luke wants us to see here that that like a greater Abraham called to leave his home that he knows and go to a land where he didn't belong, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Why? Because the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and the third day he will rise. Jesus doesn't need your zeal to prop Him up. Jesus doesn't need your idealism to keep things moving along. And He doesn't need your pragmatism to make things work. His plan brings grace where you have nothing to offer. His plan endures where you fail. And His plan is faithful where you are faithless. God has set His face toward your redemption, and He will not waver. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, we pray that You would grant to us eyes to see this good news and to believe so that we might walk in Your way. For Jesus' sake, in His name we pray. Amen.